Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. Joel Mackauer is the co-founder and executive editor of Green Biz, a media and events company which focuses on advancing opportunities at the intersection of business, technology, and sustainability. Joel joins us on today's episode to share thoughts around how some of the world's biggest companies are integrating sustainability into their operations while aligning with core business values. He also discusses his recent book, The New Grand Strategy, which describes a business plan for the U.S. embedding sustainability as a real strategic national imperative. Enjoy the conversation. Oh, thank you so much for, for joining. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you and to have the opportunity to have this conversation. Um, okay. Thanks for inviting me, Brendan. Yeah. Where are you Zooming in from today? I'm Zooming in from home in uh, beautiful Oakland, California. Oh, nice. Nice. Um, well, can you just start maybe by giving us a little background about yourself um, and what your focus is at GreenBiz? Sure. Um, so I am a journalist by training, although I've been self-employed for my whole career. And for the last 30 years, I've been focusing on this uh, world that's variously called corporate social responsibility, at least initially corporate environmental responsibility. But now it's much more around uh, sustainability and the clean economy um, and a whole range in the, in the, in a whole range of technologies that are evolving around that. And, and, and the private sector. So my company, Green Biz Group, uh, is uh, a media and events company focusing at the intersection of business, technology, and sustainability, particularly how the world's biggest companies are integrating sustainability <clears throat> into their operations and doing it in a way that aligns very closely with core business value measured in all kinds of different ways. And we can get into some of that. Um, but it's a, it's just fascinating area that's, that even after 30 years is just does not get old. In fact, some days it feels like it's just getting going. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of just getting going, at least in the in the real estate industry. And I'm curious, as someone who has had such you know a, a prolific and, and an influential voice in the sustainability movement for 30 years, how have you seen businesses like large corporations? Um, reacting to sustainability and how has that changed in particular in the last 10 years? Well, it's one of the great untold stories in business. I mean, it's told in the business press, but not very well. It's usually, you know, in, in around sort of doing less bad or greening up your image and things like that. But it's, it's amazing what's happened uh, in the past 10 years, even the past five years, even this year, in, you know, amidst everything that's going on in the economy and in the world and society, how much of this is moving ahead. I mean, basically, we've, we've sort of flipped the script, Brendan, from, from going from an era of uh, how to do less bad, how to you know, emit less and waste less and uh, use you know, fewer uh, polluting technologies and materials and things, to uh, doing the right thing, to uh, doing well by doing good, to uh, greening the bottom line, to, uh, to now we're at a point where it's not just enough for companies and projects to be better or to be green or to be sustainable. 
it's now about being restorative and regenerative. And so we've, and these aren't just woo-woo words that we, we utter here in California. These are, this is some of the world's biggest companies are talking about regenerative agriculture, regenerative buildings, regenerative product companies, uh, supply chains, uh, value chains. And so we've moved from this era of companies inadvertently doing bad because it was just the way business was done to companies deliberately doing good, to companies deliberately being restorative and regenerative. And that's a huge change. I'm happy to get into the details of that, but at a big picture, that's the big story. And, and to what extent is that driven by like a real authenticity in the leadership of these businesses? And I asked the question in part because when you think about, you know, uh, a younger consumer and, and younger millennial workers, you know, sustainability is table stakes, right? For the, pro- for the products they buy, for the companies they work at. And I would say from our perspective, it does feel like there's higher levels of authenticity. It's not just about risk avoidance anymore. It's actually about doing good. Do you think that's driven by the younger generation and their role in the economy? Well, that's a, it plays a role. I mean, companies are keenly aware of, of the attitudes of the millennials and Gen X and Y and Z around um, uh, not just wanting to buy from good products and do business with good, with good companies, but um, actually want to work for and, or invest in those companies. And, and that's become part of it. But actually a lot more of it is, I think that's a small part of it relative to the bigger issues. I mean, you know, we always talk about what's the business case for sustainability, as if somehow there's a business case for destroying the planet. And for, I have sort of an old answer and a new answer. The old answer is the one you see on every company, every business school professor conversation or presentation on sustainable business, which is cost, about cutting costs, improving revenue, uh, being a preferred supplier, attracting and retaining talent and company and, and capital, um, and the reputational kinds of things. Um, and that's all true. There's nothing wrong with that answer. But increasingly, it boils down to one word, risk. Uh, financial risk, reputational risk, right to operate risk, regulatory risk, stranded asset risk, uh, technology risk. And that's driving so much of this, is that companies recognize that this is about risk, pure and simple. Climate risk is a is a term that's been around for a while, five years in terms of in which it's really been talked about in the mainstream. But right now, it's all of a sudden more and more companies and more and more uh, big institutional investors are talking about climate risk. How does it affect uh, a company's ability to remain in business, to have customers, have facilities open, have their supply chains reliable, um, and and everything that's likely going to happen in a climate-changing world. So risk is really... Uh, as much as anything is driving this conversation. And yeah, uh, the the younger generation is aware of this and they understand that there, there's some existential threats out there that are going to very much affect their future. And so they're leaning into this in ways that their predecessors hadn't. But I think companies see this in much more fundamental terms, in terms of their ability to remain uh, in business, frankly, for the next generation. And, and hearing you talk about risks and obviously like existential threats, you know, your recent book, The, the New Grand Strategy, it, it describes uh, a business plan effectively for America born at the Pentagon. 
and it kind of embeds sustainability as like a, a real strategic national imperative. Can you just talk about that? Like, how did you choose to, to present it that way? How did, how did you think about framing it that way? Well, this book came out of a, out of a project that was done at the Pentagon, uh, commissioned by Mike Mullen, who at the time, 2009, was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the highest ranking uh, military officer in the federal government. And he asked a, uh, a, a Navy captain and a Marine colonel uh, to come up with a strategy for America's future, which is sort of an audacious kind of thing. It's not a military strategy, not a security strategy, not an intelligence strategy. We, all, we had lots of those. But he, he, I interviewed Mullen about this when we did this book. And I said, what were you thinking? He said, well, I didn't know the world in which we were trying to you know, be a part of. What was the America's role in the world going forward? Uh, no one would tell me that he was, he was brought into the Joint Chiefs by, uh, by uh, George W. Bush. And now it's, uh, it's Obama, early Obama administration. He said, no one could tell me what my million and a half men and women were fighting for. So these two, this colonel and this captain, it sounds like a joke, Navy colonel and a, and a, I mean, a Marine colonel and a Navy captain walked into a bar, they actually in, installed themselves in a room just down the hall from Mullins for a number of months and came out with this report that said, sustainability needs to be the organizing logic for a new American economy. And it called for dusting off something called grand strategy, which is something that America has done at critical times in its history to take on the big existential challenges of the time, uh, fighting fascism in World War II or containing the communist threat uh, after the war and into the 60s and 70s. And, uh, and, and so <clears throat> the question was, well, what is the, biz the big existential threat now? And it's this whole process of grand strategy of aligning your economy with your foreign policy and your governing institutions to take on these big challenges. And it's a whole history of how we became the arsenal for democracy in, in, in World War II and became, um, it had this strategy of containment uh, for the Soviet Union after that. And so, well, what is the big existential threat now? And it's, it's something called global unsustainability, which is about you know, three billion people coming into the global economy, knocking on the door of the middle class. It's about our shaky infrastructure and supply chains, and uh, which we're seeing now, and and how, you know, you can get knocked off that pretty pretty quickly by a one serious event or even lots of smaller ones, and uh, and and other things we talked about, and and that will you know, how do you leverage what America has done in the past, leaning on its economy and the private sector to drive America's, uh, to make America what it was in the past, which is this beacon of hope and stability in the world. And so we came up with this plan and it, it was born out of the one that was done for the Pentagon and developed in a book form, uh, taking on three massive pools of demand. That's always about fulfilling the biggest pools of demand. And the biggest pools of demand are walkable communities, regenerative agriculture, and resource productivity. And we'll go into all of that right now, except to say that this book was actually written uh, in 2015, I think. It came out in 2016, before the current administration, before climate had become what it had become, certainly before the pandemic. Um, and it, it, it's... It, 
you know, it did not become part of the discourse in the 2016 election. That discourse turned out to be different than the typical election cycle. Uh, but the fact is it's relevant, as relevant now as ever. In fact, maybe even more so given all that's happened. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And and to some extent, it feels like the the pandemic itself has given the U.S. and the world this glimpse into what's possible, right? You you saw cleaner airs and cleaner air in China. You saw cleaner air in Los Angeles. But now we're in this twilight where it feels like we're transitioning back to work. We're trying to get back to normalcy. We're trying to get back to the habits we had before. But in some ways, we're not questioning whether those habits will lead to the same outcomes, which of course they will. Um, how do you think we make people realize that the, the slight aperture uh, that, that we got to see of what a cleaner planet might look like, how do we make that persist? And how do we make that endure in a post-COVID world? Well, it's not just that, Brendan. It's not just that we saw cleaner air, as we have. It's actually a much more fundamental connection between the pandemic and climate change, uh, which is about, and even the, the, the racial injustice, the social justice movement, it's about um, uh, individual responsibility, but collective action. Uh, it's about understanding uh, that early action can stave off problems later on. Uh, it's about understanding that these are, are fundamental shifts in how we think about our world, not just quick policy changes or you know a few fancy slogans. Um, it's really understanding that this is there's some structural things that need to be fixed. That's true with the pandemic. It's certainly true with climate change. It's definitely true with the uh, social justice movement. And so I think we're starting to see uh, what so how we think about problems and how we take on problems at the scale, scope, and speed that we address these things needs to change. It needs to shift fundamentally if we're going to take on some of these big environmental and social and ultimately economic challenges uh, that are in front of us. And that comment about preemptive action seems so appropriate, right? Because there, there, are, there, there, there is this similarity between a pandemic and climate change in the sense that these are gigantic collective action problems where the inability to all act together is to the diminution of everyone, right? And so we want to act together, but the time horizons are quite different, right? The speed with which no one had heard about COVID until their lives were impacted by it was, you know, maybe months effectively. Whereas in climate change, we've known about this for years, decades now, and yet the actual effects we're seeing the beginning of, but it's not crystal clear, I think, at least to some people, how, how pernicious these can be on our economy. And how do you think about like drawing conclusions from what we've seen in the pandemic, our response to the pandemic, some of the failures of those responses, and applying them to climate change? Well, it's a big question, a big challenge. I mean, we have this uh, tendency recently in the United States of, of politicizing almost everything. And when you politicize almost everything, you immediately become hyperpartisan and it become these two sides with maybe a little room in the middle, a few people who aren't sure, aren't decided, or just not aware. And and that's a big challenge with, with climate change that became a political thing. It shouldn't be. It's a public health issue. It's an economic issue. It's, it's, it's increasingly a food issue, water issue, housing issue. Um, and so and, and equity and fundamental fairness issue, as, as always, the, those most impacted as they are with COVID are those uh, at the bottom of the economic ladder, the most vulnerable uh, communities, frontline communities, as they're called, 
that are on on coasts or as we've seeing at the time we're talking now it's uh, uh we've just had these hurricanes in uh, laura and marco uh in the southern united states and we've seen what's happened in louisiana and parts of texas and and who's most impacted there yeah it's it's very it's very similar you know we have to flatten the curve you know the earlier you take action but we have to get past this fundamental nature of it and i think we're starting to see uh, how the political uh, nature is 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 hindering our ability to address it. Where this becomes impactful is when it gets personal. Same yeah. with COVID. Uh, when climate change gets personal, when we start to see more and more people displaced because of the other thing going on or the wildfires, not that far from me here in California. Um, uh, and, you know, more and more of that, that's no longer a rarity. That's almost an annual event. The hurricanes, obviously, the, f the impact on farmers of droughts or floods in the Midwest, U.S. And the more personal it gets, I think the more people are going to be climbing. The problem is, by the and, and this, we've seen this with COVID, by the time it gets personal, it's almost too late. Yeah. So there we are. I mean, and, and I hate to say too late because it makes it sound like, well, we should, we don't, there's nothing we can do, so we should just enjoy the ride, you know, eat dessert first and all that good stuff. But, but it's not too late. I, what's now is, and, and is true with the pandemic is, is the question is, is not whether it's going to happen, but how bad is it going to get? With the pandemic, it turned out to be pretty bad. And uh, with climate change, all those votes aren't in yet. We still have an opportunity to make it less bad, but it's still going to get fairly bad. I mean, there's the science tells us that, the evidence tells us that. So that's the question, is it how bad does it have to get, Brendan, before people say, oh my God, we need to do something? And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, where we spend a lot of time, which is on the global real estate industry, because the, the stats about the global real estate industry are staggering in terms of their culpability in climate change, right? It's 40% of the world's consumption of energy, 30% of greenhouse gases, and the real estate industry consumes 40% of all raw materials. And I guess I have two questions, which is, one is, why do you think the real estate industry has kind of been able to skirt the spotlight a little bit from other industries that intuitively seem more, um, more culpable in climate change. Meaning I think when I think of climate change, I think of heavy manufacturing and, you know, petrochemicals and uh, natural resources and transportation, but you don't intuitively think of real estate. Why do you think that is? And how do we change that? Well, in part because we don't see smokestacks, drain pipes, and dumpsters, uh, you know, overflowing coming from your typical office building, uh, and and or residential development, and so we don't have that evidence there. It's a much more subtle impact in terms of uh, land use, in terms of uh, uh, replacing uh, nature's services that the, the ecosystem services, as they're called, that would take place on a piece of land, uh, virgin land that's now being built on and developed. Um, with concrete and steel and, and lots of other materials and taking away those ecosystem services, erosion control, flood control, pollination, air filtering, water filtering, and on and on. There's a whole list of them, trillions and trillions of dollars of those every year that do not end up on anybody's books. Um, and, and so it's a more subtle kind of thing. But now we're under, starting to understand that First of all, this is part of a of a system. It's it's how and where you build 
has to do with uh, density and 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 how many where the roads go and and where pollution ends up and where jobs are and and there's governance issues and zoning issues and what happens to farmland and what happens to the the urban nature interface where if we get too close it's one of the problems with the wildfires in California people have built further and further into nature all of a sudden nature is saying wait a minute here we have a say in this and nature's you know doing what nature has always done but now it's doing it where there are people living and, and companies and whole whole towns and so yeah, I think that's the reason it hasn't been at the forefront is we don't look at an office building and you may see all the lights on at night and wonder why, why are they wasting all that energy? But that's about as bad as it gets. And, and we don't, and we just say, well, that's, that's money. They're just wasting money. It's not, it's not really affecting us. But increasingly, we're, see, we're starting to connect those dots better and we're starting to see how these things are happening. And from the financial point of view, from the REIT point of view, from the investment point of view, we're starting to see, well, this, again, goes back to my one word, risk. Uh, you know, where are you building? Is that on a floodplain, a fire zone, earthquake? Where, you know, what's the impact of that? How, does it, do we need to be building there or should we not be building there? Uh, what should we be doing? What about uh, these new planned communities? They're, they're good, but there may be some uh, zoning things that are perverse that may get in the way of, of building the small, dense uh, uh, residential and commercial communities and walkable communities that people want. Um, and so we're starting to look at this in some new ways with, through the lens of sustainability. And again, sustainability is not just about the environment, it's about social equity and fairness and, and, and social cohesion, as well as the economy. And how all those come together in real estate is a really fascinating and growing part of the conversation. It is, and it almost feels like, you know, the to some extent, one of the biggest culprits is hiding in plain sight, right? It's, the, it's this contributor that you don't really see. And I, it feels a bit like in the last, in the last like decade, a combination of all these three forces have kind of thrust the real estate industry into the spotlight now, which is capital markets, as you put it, risk is a huge driver and allocators of equity and debt capital and insurance money is saying, we will preferentially deploy capital to lower no carbon impact real estate for good reason, right? It reduces the risk. You're also seeing it from tenants, right? So especially these large progressive tenants like Google and Netflix, they're saying, we won't lease space from you if you don't adhere right. to these criteria. And you're also seeing it from regulators, right? What you saw in New York and Los Angeles, these new carbon neutrality laws. And what's interesting is, you know, what we've seen a lot of real estate owners do is they come out with these bold grand statements that, oh, we're net zero, right? But what that actually means is you bought a bunch of carbon offset credits, right? You're, you're putting just as many emissions into the environment as you were before you did right. that. It's, it's like the... I think about it as the sustainability equivalent of corking your bat, right? In baseball, it's just kind of, it's not really achieving what you're purporting it to achieve, or it's a, a cheap yeah. kind of shoddy trick. Why well, corking, you your, corking your bat is illegal. I don't think that offsets aren't illegal, but they're just not the, they're not as, if you're trying to impact change and not just, you know, check a box, they're not the right way to go. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and to some extent, I do think about that in, in that, Real estate owners are saying this, and I think people are very quick to say, oh, well, this owner is, you know, net zero from a carbon impact perspective, right. but it's not true. What are the questions that, like, consumers, homeowners, 
uh, CEOs should be asking of landlords to really get to the truth of how much their real estate landlord or their real estate owner or their real estate developer truly cares about reducing the impact of that asset on the environment. Yeah, I don't know that there's any one question, because uh, these are very complicated things. It sounds simple when, when you can talk about it. And I think of the, the uh, offset thing as, as just writing a check to buy absolution. Uh, you haven't changed anything, it's just that now you're writing a check to, and you're somehow absolved of everything you do. I, I, think, I don't think consumers, um, maybe some tenants, are really asking those questions. And I don't know that it's their job to do that, Brendan. I think that, that this needs to be, uh, again, on the investor side, really, really need to be driving this and saying, because uh, there are standards for, for uh, there's some net zero coalitions of companies. And now that net zero, frankly, a term that was barely used even a year or two ago is now like one of those words and they come around where everybody's using them. Carbon neutral was one version of that. Um, zero waste in, in a different realm is another one of those. Um, and, and all of a sudden people say, okay, well, everybody uses it. And then all of a sudden someone says, well, you're not all using it the same way or you th you're, you're actually being deceptive in the way you use it. So, there's usually some activists or some investors or some coalitions of, of both, maybe even some regulators at the state or local level who say, wait a minute now, if you're going to say net zero, you're going to have to meet some criteria. First of all, you're going to have to actually make an effort to reduce the emissions, not just quantify them and then write the check for the offsets saying, okay, someone's, you know, been doing something over here that's going to make it okay for me to continue doing what I'm doing right here. Uh, but but also, uh, you know, how much are you reducing over what period of time? What's your ambition? What are the goals and, and timetables? What are the commitments you're making? And also, is that just in the operations or is that in the building itself, particularly with new construction or retrofits? And so I think we're going to start to see some questions. I don't know what those are going to be because I, I can only hint at how they've evolved in other sectors. But I can tell you that at some point in the not very distant future, because there is so much heat right now around this term called net zero, that, that people are going to start asking questions. And, and this happens every time saying, yeah, that's, that's greenwash or that's misleading or, or however they want to phrase it. And we're going to actually now start pushing you to do more. We're going to start rating and ranking things beyond lead or well or any of the other uh, certifications that's, that really look at particularly the big portfolio owners and the owner operators of uh, corporate uh, owners uh, are, are, are going to be asked some pretty tough questions about their built space. And as we kind of, uh, you know, unpack that nuance around what net zero can or, or should mean, at least one of the components of that seems to be you know, how are industries committing to investing in innovation, right? New technology, new software, new hardware that is actually going to propel them forward, that actually reduces the carbon footprint of their day-to-day -day operations or of building a building. You know, one of the things that's been surprising to me that we haven't yet seen in the real estate industry is a real commitment to that, to new technology, to new innovation. Why do you think that is? And I contrast it a bit with what we just saw out of Amazon and Microsoft, which is these gigantic commitments to new innovation and saying existentially, this is how, you know, we're going to have our path through to being a net 
you know, a net zero company, actually. Why do you think that hasn't happened in industries like real estate? Well, it has. It's happened, but primarily um, uh, for the, in corporate campuses. Um, and so Microsoft, you mentioned them. I mean, for seven, eight, maybe even 10 years, they've been, they've been doing projects at, in the Redmond campus where they've got 120 or so buildings, millions and millions of square feet, uh, uh, th- tens of thousands of, of, of pieces of mechanical equipment. Um, and they've been connecting them and, and, and looking at them using their own software and or, or readily available technology, not inventing anything new except maybe some programming around that to look at how these things fit together, getting millions of data points a day uh, or, or certainly hundreds of thousands of data points a day and figuring out how do you not just um, you leverage that to reduce operating costs, but how do you take it the next step and, and get to the point where you can also flow in uh, traffic data, weather data, transit data, utility data, to shave the peak energy use, to make predict, predictive buildings that can anticipate uh, loads and needs um, and traffic, uh, human traffic as well as vehicle traffic, and start to dramatically cut energy use, improving performance, uh, automating the you know the, the mechanical equipment. They had these thirty thousand pieces used to get inspected, average of twenty percent a year, which means they only get around to everything once every five years. But now having real time analytics on that, and this is with off the shelf uh, technology. And sure, some of that's getting better. We're seeing a lot of Internet of Things uh, technologies that are improving lighting and HVAC and a whole range of other aspects of building operations. But all that stuff's available now. It's not going to take a lot of new stuff. But the question is, what is it going to take for for owners and landlords to get in and start to deploy this stuff uh, in the near future? What do you think it is? I'm curious. Like, what do you think that? (laughs) What is that compelling force? Um, Because we just haven't seen it. Like, we we do see it in on the tenant side, right? You see it from tenants, like Microsoft said, but we haven't seen it from landlords. And part of it is this this reticence to do anything now, right? We, we, in some ways, Fifth Wall has always struggled to get corporates to, in the real estate industry, to embrace change and to embrace innovation. What do you think that compelling hook or narrative can be that, that drives that change? Yeah, well, it's harder to embrace change in when you're building something with a 50-year lifespan. Right. And so, as opposed to a widget. Um, but you look, it, it's almost more imperative that you do, right? Because you you have such longevity to the asset that functional obsolescence, either from a practical standpoint or from a sustainability standpoint, is very real if you build the wrong, yeah. the wrong way. Yeah, no question. Look, Brendan, it's always carrots and sticks, fear and greed. You know, one of those two things is always going to drive. So, right. so greed, can I make more money uh, doing this? Can I either save money or charge more rent or whatever it is? Um, or, or reduce reduce turnover, or some some metric that matters to me. Uh, fear uh, is: Am I going to lose tenants? Am I going to start to be subject to uh, to attention I don't want? Are there going to be regulatory? Uh, is it fear of regulation that if I don't do this, there will be laws that requiring me to do it, and maybe not the way or the in, in the same way that I would have done it on my own? So that's the question: Are we are we going to be rewarding? Uh, you know, and somehow, whether it's, it's in uh, uh, financial terms or regulatory terms or commercial terms, the ones that, that 
you know, the early adopters and the ones that are proactive, are we going to be hurting in some way, again, financially through interest rates, perhaps, or, or regulatory or commercial demand and the market, those that aren't doing these things. And so far, we haven't seen that because, you know, and I know you know this, this data very well, the, the, the uh, operational costs of a building pale in comparison to the, to the labor costs in that going on in that building and the labor cost per square foot versus the operational cost. It's a, it's a fraction. Uh, and so you don't get as much uh, bang for your buck uh, from doing a lot of these things uh, in, in pure dollars and cents terms as you would from, you know, other things that you can do in, inside of an operation. So until we see those reward systems line up with what we need to be doing as a society, we're probably not going to get the, this uh, done at the scale, scope, and speed we need. And as you think about, you know, financially mechanizing that, that carrot and that stick, as you said, do you feel uh, optimistic or inspired by some of the local laws that we've seen, in particular what New York did last year and what Los Angeles has also did, which is they've established a clear standard um, around net neutrality. And they've said, if you don't adhere to the fines will start to go into effect as early, I think as 2024 or 2025. And that's very punitive, right? That's in some ways a new form of real estate tax. Do you think that is the mechanism that you would lean into? Or do you think there's other ways that you're more optimistic about? Well, we don't know how those are going to work yet, so it's hard to predict that. I think every community or, or jurisdiction uh, needs to find its own solution set that what works in New York and L.A. may not work in, in Topeka and, and uh, in even smaller towns on the coast. Um, and so we have to see what, what works. I think there's a lot of promise in, in um, sustainability-linked loans where uh, increasingly – uh, banks are giving preferred rates to companies with good scores in the ESG environmental, social, and governance realm as, as designated by some of the ratings agencies that look at companies in these ways. They're asking companies to set targets and meet them. And if they do, they get a lower interest rate. And if they don't, they don't. They get a higher rate. Uh, you know, when the cost of money uh, is impacted by one's sustainability performance, sustainability all of a sudden rises to the top. Right. And that hasn't been the case as much. And so will, will we be seeing credits or favorable interest rates or other incentives for companies to invest in their buildings or whether it's new or, or existing? That would make a huge bit of difference. There's this, that's a carrot. The stick part is you pass a law that says by this date, your building must be X, Y, and Z. And, and that's a different way. And, and what's the right mix of those? Those are like little levers that you have to pull in the right ways at, at the right moment. For, uh, and I think everybody's trying to figure that out right now. But the, yeah. but the question is not, is not whether, it's really what specifically and how quickly these yeah. kinds of characteristics will be in place. And how to tailor them, it sounds like, as you're saying, to the idiosyncrasies of one geography or one asset class versus another. And yeah. what I would say is that, you know, what we're seeing, at least from, you know, our conversations with the real estate industry is that there's definitely some cause for optimism because two years ago, we weren't really hearing much from the real estate industry about their commitment to sustainability. And now it appears to be front and center. And I think that's a trend that, you know, 2020 is a weird year because, there's a whole yeah, thing. Yeah, there's another <laughs> there's another um, kind of collective action problem that is 
way more topical and you know way more in your face but this is not going away and i think real estate owners appreciate that regulators appreciate that and it seems like capital markets are as well which is exciting um yeah i mean one of the questions is how quickly do they line up to provide something else that companies need which is uh, certainty market certainty regulatory certainty financial certainty um and I think once we can get to that point and companies will say, okay, this is where the market is. This is where the demand is. This is what the regulators want. This is what the banks want. Um, so I can now sort of make some predictions and some plans and some forecasts based on those realities. Right now it still seems optional. And so it's, it's only for those who really want to do the right thing or whatever that make the world a better place or whatever the expression is for any given individual. And that's not enough to create the markets that we need. And we've seen how, how what consumers want can change, right? I, I signed a lease on a building uh, six months ago, and it didn't even occur to me to ask about uh, air filtration, right? And air quality and spacing okay. between desks. That just was not top of mind. And I guess this, this pandemic has thrust those kind of questions to real estate landlords. How do we do the same thing with, um, sustainability, right? And asking the right questions at the right time so that real estate owners really are, are embracing, right? The, the, the role they have to play in this collective action problem. So, um, Joel, this has been really interesting to chat with you. Um, I really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for just sharing your insights. My pleasure, Brendan. Thank you. Thanks, Joel. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building to Zero. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.